You can be seated. Oh, hallelujah. You know, if you're, if you're struggling with peace or a lack of peace right now, um, before you blame the devil, make sure that what you're setting your heart and mind on um, are things above and not on things of earth. Make sure you're taking off the things that Colossians 3 tells us to take off and putting on the things that we're called to put on. Because if we don't do that, we won't be surprised when the peace of God doesn't rule in our hearts. So just uh, <clears throat> that didn't have anything to do with the sermon. That was just like a, a free piece of information. So today we are on part 23 of Trust the Story. If you've got a Bible, I want you to open to the book of Acts, chapter 20. We're going to walk through some of these chapters. Uh, if you have just joined us for the first time, um, hopefully you'll still get something from it. But I promise you that if you hear something that sounds out of context or out of, that just seems like out of left field, it may have been the context of something that we've already talked about. Um, and so I just encourage you to go back through on our podcast. You can find all of those um, on our website. You can find them on our uh, Facebook page. And you can listen and be a part. We've been using the book um, Trust the Story by Frank Viola to help. Um, it's actually not called Trust the Story. The series is. It's called The Untold Story by Frank Viola. And he is giving us the context of the passages of scriptures that we've been reading. And this last week we were reading Acts 23 through 28. And then we were reading uh, pages 143 through 146 in the book. This week ahead, um, just a small paragraph in the book by the untold story and then the book of Mark, uh, the gospel of Mark this week. And then we'll read the gospel of Ma Matthew uh, the following week. And you'll notice in parentheses it says Luke. If you remember all the way back in the beginning, we read the gospel of Luke. But if you want to reread it uh, at this point, you could as well because this is the time period that those have been written. What we're trying to do is go through the book of Acts and put in timeline or context all of these letters that have been written. When, like this last week, when Acts 23, or the last two weeks, when we were going through Acts 20 through 28, um, I would try to read those chapters every single day. Different translations, trying to get the, the, the story that's taking place, uh, using the untold story, and trying to understand what's being put in front of me. Um, whenever it's like a book, like the, the, the Gospel of Mark or the Book of Romans, I'd love to tell you that I've taken time to read it every single day. Eh, haven't. But I've tried to read it at least three times in that week from different translations, again, trying to soak in the Word. And you're like, how could I read the Gospel of Mark three times? There's 16 chapters this week. I bet if you cut something out of your schedule, like me, we could find time. But... We don't always do that. And so today, we're going to talk about um, it, it isn't over until it's over. It isn't over until it's over. Um, super excited about this message and this word. Um, we, the whole point of Trust the Story is about becoming people of the text, the Bible. Um, we cannot be just casual readers, casual students of the Word of God. Yes, we should read the Word. Yes, we should meditate on the Word. Yes, we should memorize the Word. All of those are in the Scripture. The Scripture also says that we should study the Word. Study the Word. There's a word for Bible study that's called hermeneutic. That's a big word. Hermeneutic. In fact, in college, I took a class called hermeneutics. And hermeneutics 
is about trying to get the correct interpretation of the Bible. Wouldn't it be great to get the correct interpretation of the Bible? How many of you think, (laughs) don't raise your hand, you have the correct interpretation of the Bible? I mean, we all do. We all think we do. And yet, if you look at the church around the world, sometimes we don't agree on some of the stuff. And so how do we know the correct hermeneutic? And as we've talked about in Trust the Story, the Jews were people of the text, so they memorized the entire Old Testament, our Old Testament. They committed it to memory because they didn't have it like we did written down, so they had to memorize it. And when you were a Jewish rabbi, you would refer to an Old Testament text, but all of your audience, because they memorized it, would be able to know the entire context that that was written in. So even though you only quoted a small part of it, you were actually alluding to all of it. And so we miss that sometimes when we're reading Scripture and Jesus alludes to something in the Old Testament. I'd encourage you to go back and read the whole context of what he's talking about because that makes more sense when we're reading it. How many of you remember Jesus on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we as good Christian English readers would read that and think, oh my goodness, Jesus feels forsaken by God. That's so heart-wrenching. And I'm not making light of it in any sense. And I'm not saying Jesus didn't feel forsaken by God. But did you know that Jesus wasn't just voicing his thoughts in that moment? He was pointing to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 wasn't called Psalm 22, but it was referred to by its first words. And you know what the first words of Psalm 22 are? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you read all of Psalm 22, you'll, talk, you'll read about this person who was so thirsty that his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. And you'll read about this person who they casted lots for his garments. And this person who they pierced his hands and his feet. What is Jesus doing on the cross with full thought process? He's pointing to Psalm 22 so those that are there would know that he's the Messiah. So he's not just up there going, oh, I'm in agony. God, why have you forsaken me? He's in that moment still pointing to the truth of the Scripture. And sometimes we miss stuff like that because we're not people of the text, but we want to be. We want to be. And sometimes people are like, oh, Pastor Tom, I just feel so overwhelmed by it all. Like, will I ever be a person of the text? Yes, Just every day be a little more a person of the text. And we've talked about the idea of textual hermeneutic. That's what we just did. We look at the text. We look at what it meant to the original people. And we put it in that cultural context and we make sense of it. But then there's something that we talked about called spiritual hermeneutic. Spiritual hermeneutic. Where we can take the scripture and God actually makes it personal to us. I mean, he actually makes it apply to what I'm going through right now in 2020. And it's like, boom, my mind is blown. It's just crazy. Peter did this on the day of Pentecost. Joel wrote in the book of Joel, he wrote something. And if you look at the textual hermeneutic of Joel 2, it made sense when Joel wrote it. And it was about things Joel was, they were experiencing in that moment. But then Peter, on the day of Pentecost, spiritually says, this is 
what we're experiencing on the day of Pentecost, what Joel was saying. So there's like this double meaning. Boom, boom. Now be careful because the spiritual hermeneutic should never contradict the textual hermeneutic. Should never contradict it. And sometimes we like to take the scripture and twist it to make it mean whatever our itching ears want to hear. 2 Timothy chapter 4 Paul, telling his young Timothy, says, Preach the word, be prepared in season, out of season, correct rebuke, and encourage with great patience. Great patience. How many of you believe we need great patience today? We do. And careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up a sound doctrine, but instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around themselves a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Now, when I was growing up, I heard this preached a lot. And itching ears, what they want to hear, was always preached in terms of, well, the people that want to make sex okay, or if people want to make vulgarity okay, or people that want to make sin okay, and they put it in their lives. And those people out there don't want to hear the truth of the Word of God like those of us in here. And that's true. There's an itching ear message that wants to try to take things that the scripture says are not in the character of God and make them okay. However, if we just go back one chapter to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we see that in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, not tre- or treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. There's also an itching ear message that we can preach that makes us better than the people out there, but allows us to be selfish, treacherous, disobedient to parents, unforgiving, slanderous, brutal. And we don't want to do that. And so the way that we do that, by the way, there's no such thing as lazy hermeneutic. Okay? There's textual hermeneutic and there's spiritual hermeneutic, but there's no lazy hermeneutic. But it's interesting to me, How many denominations, Christian organizations, Christian schools, even before 2020 started, the theme for those organizations, Christian organizations, were dealing with biblical illiteracy and saying in 2020, we want to become people of the word. We want to get in the word. That's all over the place. That's what we wanted to do. Be people of the word. We put this series together back in 2019 Trust the story. Know what God is saying from beginning to end so that we don't mishandle the word of God, but we handle it in truth, in spirit, and in love. So that's what we've been trying to do. So what I want us to do today is walk through Acts chapter 20 through 28. Look at the clock. And I want to do some textual hermeneutic with us. And then I want to do some spiritual hermeneutic on Acts 27. And so you're going to have to take my spiritual hermeneutic and see if it lines up. I'm not going to say, this is thus saith the Lord, but I really feel like God put something from Acts 27 on my heart for us as a church and for all who will listen. But let's start in Acts chapter 20. As we've been going through, we know that Paul has been in Ephesus for a couple years. And during that time, he wrote a couple letters to the Corinthians. He wrote a letter to the church in Rome. He's planted more than 11 churches during that season, during that, that three or four year period that he was in Ephesus. He's traveled through Macedonia and Greece and then Corinth. And then he comes to Acts chapter 20, verse 22. And it says this, compelled by the Spirit. 
I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Hallelujah. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race, complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I wonder if you and I are as ready as the Apostle Paul to be suffered, to suffer and to be inconvenienced the way he is about to be. I don't know that we are. I don't know that I am. But I've been praying over the last several weeks, God, I'm not ready for this. Help me get ready. That's what I've been praying. And so then he goes on in verse 32, and he says, starts to say farewell to the church there in Ephesus. He says, I commit to you, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You know what's funny? I have searched my Bible, and I can't find that in red letters anywhere except here. Now, we could make the case that Jesus taught it is more blessed to give than receive, but somehow Paul makes this claim, the Lord himself said it is more blessed to give than receive, but it's not in our Bible. But Paul must have heard it, or remember we were told not everything Jesus said was written down, but it's apparently important enough for Paul that everywhere he goes, he reminds them to give to the poor, to take an offering so that they can take it to Jerusalem. Why is he about to go to Jerusalem now? To take the offering to Jerusalem. There's no Western Union. There's no banks. There's no way to get the money there unless they take it there. And that's what Paul is about to do. But then look at this. The church is like, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and they prayed. They wept as they embraced him and they kissed him. What grieved them most was the statement that they will never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. The interesting thing is, as you read through these chapters, how many times the people of the churches will plead with Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. It's so reminiscent of Jesus and his disciples. Remember when Jesus said, I got to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me? And they're like, no, don't go to Jerusalem. That's a dumb idea. And then Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have in, in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of man. The things of man are don't go to Jerusalem, protect your life. Don't do something that's going to cost you. Don't do something that's going to get you killed. You know, protect yourself. That's the ways of man, according to Jesus and Paul. So he even gets this personal prophecy about Agabus in a couple chapters where Agabus puts a belt around Paul's wrist and says, uh, you're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to get arrested. And the church is like, don't go. And Paul's like, I got to go because this is what I'm compelled by the Spirit to do. So then in Acts chapter 21, 22, and 23, we get to know about Paul's arrest while he's in Jerusalem. And we don't have time to go into all the details about what's happening. But the, the details of Paul's arrest are a bunch of false accusations. We, we read that Paul kept the Jewish tradition. He's keeping the law. He's just not putting the law on the Gentiles. And what happens in Acts chapter 22, we're not going to take time to read it, but he addresses the crowd in Jerusalem, and they're okay with his message until the moment he says, 
God has told me to go to the Gentiles. And then they start throwing dust in the air and yelling, he's not fit to live. And they get upset. In fact, the Roman officer then takes Paul in to the barracks because Paul's speaking in Hebrew and they don't understand what he's saying at the time. And they think Paul's purposely trying to incite the crowd. He's not purposely trying to incite the crowd. He's just telling them what Jesus said, that I'm going to preach to the Gentiles. And they had a hard time with that. And so they're going to flog him, and Paul's like, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. (laughs) And they're like, oops, because they didn't expect him to be a Roman citizen. And so then they say, well, okay, we're going to send you off to get a fair trial to Governor Felix. So Paul's nephew overhears that the Jews are going to try to kill Paul on his way. So he tells Paul, Paul tells him to tell the centurion. The centurion then sends Paul at nighttime to Felix Acts chapter 24, we're in the account of Felix, and Felix is hearing Paul's case. He's listening to the Sanhedrin, and Felix kind of drags his feet. He doesn't really want to make a decision, because here's the problem that Felix has. If he releases Paul, he's going to tick off the Sanhedrin and the Jews, and that's going to cause unrest, and the Romans don't like it when there's unrest, and that could be costly to Felix, so he doesn't really want to release Paul. But he doesn't really want to turn Paul over to them because then that's going to upset the people of the way and they're, going to, they're still going to be unrest. So he doesn't really know what to do and he's hoping Paul will bribe him. Paul never bribes him. But Paul has an opportunity several times to talk to Felix. And Felix and his wife Drusilla, this is what Paul says here in Acts chapter 24 with Felix and his wife Drusilla who is Jewish. Paul He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ. And as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. These three words that Paul emphasizes when he preaches the gospel are important for us to remember. If you want to write them down and remember them, they're very important. He speaks to them about righteousness. Righteousness, we talked about, remember when we talked about with Romans? None of us can ever live up to the standard of righteousness. So what Paul is doing when he preaches righteousness, he's he's presenting who God is, the righteous character of God. But he's not preaching it in a way that says, okay, you got to start living up to this standard because it's impossible for us to live up to the standard. And that's the whole point, that we all fall short of that. And what Paul often emphasizes, we find in Philippians chapter 3, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It's never based on, my righteousness is never based on my behavior. It's an imputed righteousness that is always based on what Christ has done for me. However, That doesn't mean that our behavior doesn't matter. Because not only does Paul talk to him about righteousness, he talks to him about self-control. Self-control is an important word. In fact, every time Paul preaches the gospel, he's got to do this back and forth. 
the righteousness comes from God, but that doesn't mean you should live however you want to live because now that we've come to Christ, like he says in Romans chapter 6, should we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. We are of those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And so for us as believers, repentance is not something we do once. Repentance is the lifestyle of continually turning away from anything outside of the character of God and turning toward the character of God. And I never get my righteousness still from my ability to do that. Well, it's always from Christ. But that doesn't excuse me and say, well, you know, just let it slide, let it pass. No, I've got to press into this. God has given me grace to make sure that I press into it. There's also the warnings of Scripture that if you let sin in your life, it becomes deceitful and will harden your heart and lead you to a place where you actually turn away from faith. Sin is dangerous. We should not participate in it. But God does not dangle us over hell by a thread that says, oh, if you make a mistake, it's over for you. But sometimes that's how we treat one another in the body of Christ. And that's why we're supposed to bear with one another and help one another, encourage one another, warn one another. In fact, in Galatians, it says, If your brother is caught in a sin, that we who are mature should warn him and be careful that we don't fall into sin ourselves. Not the same sin they're committing, but the sin of thinking they have sinned, but I do not which the longer you serve God and the longer you're a part of this church thing, we get into this habit where we start thinking that those people have sin, but me, I do not. Remember we talked about that in Romans 2 and the Pharisee who prayed, thank God I'm not like that guy. But guess what? We are like that guy. The only thing that separates me from that guy is the righteousness imputed to me through faith in Christ, not my behavior. My behavior does not separate me from that guy the righteousness of Christ does. But my behavior matters because I am born again and I follow Christ. And then he speaks to him about judgment. And the Bible actually talks about two different judgments. It talks about a judgment where those who reject Christ will be judged. That's called the great white throne judgment. And then he talks about the judgment seat of Christ where those who have put faith in Christ are judged based on what we did with his grace. What did you do? So imagine you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ. What is he going to say to us in that moment? Okay, you've taken my grace and you stopped looking at that pornography. You stopped watching dirty movies. You never swore. You didn't get drunk. You didn't do. But will he not also say, how'd you do with loving the poor? How'd you do with loving your enemies? How'd you do with blessing those who cursed you? How'd you do with those things too? Let me just let you know a little secret. As believers, everything that pops into our minds doesn't have to come out of our mouth. It's called self-control. Not every thought that enters my mind comes from Jesus. <laughs> Does yours? No. And it probably never will. It doesn't always come from the devil either, so don't blame him. It's just from our flesh. And sometimes it looks like a righteous thought, but if we take a step back and look at it, it's actually kind of a rude thought, and we should be careful. So John chapter 3 reminds us that when we stand before the judgment seat, only those who have rejected Christ will be condemned. 
So when you reject Christ, that means you're condemned. And so if we look at these things that Paul preaches, this makes Felix uncomfortable. He doesn't like it. It makes a lot of us uncomfortable because eh, we don't like it. In fact, when you start talking about stuff like that, Pastor Tom, it makes me feel like I have things I need to change. Absolutely. We all do and we always forever will. That's why Jesus says, make sure you're consistently dealing with the log in your own eye so that you're able to deal with the speck in your brother's eye. We sometimes think Jesus meant that once you deal with the log, it's gone forever. Mm, logs have a way of coming back. And we have to make sure we're dealing with what's going on here so that we can see clearly to deal with those that are in other sin. So then Acts chapter 25 um, the trial happens because Felix, we read, you know, Felix doesn't deal with it, so Festus comes to power. The same thing happens with Festus. Paul basically is not going to get anywhere, and Festus says, hey, I'm going to send you back to Jerusalem. Is that okay with you? Well, Paul knows if he goes back to Jerusalem, he's a dead man, and he needs to get to Rome because that's what the Spirit said is going to happen next. So Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus is like, thank goodness, to Caesar you will go. And so Festus is okay with this because it's Paul's right to appeal to Caesar. And now Festus doesn't have to make a decision. But the problem with Festus is he doesn't know what to write to Caesar because <laughs> there's really no charges against Paul. So King Agrippa visits. King Agrippa is like the king of northern Palestine. And he writes to, or he comes for a visit. And, and Festus is like, hey, listen to this guy and help me figure out what to write. Okay, this is in the Bible. You're just going to have to read it. But this is what's happening. Um, what I find interesting is verse 19. Because we talk a lot about the cross, and I think we should. We, I've said this before, but we don't talk a lot about the resurrection. But the resurrection is so important. It seems more important to the early church than it does for the church today. I don't know why that is. But I'm trying to, to learn that. So I don't have a definitive answer for you today. But... Even Festus, at this point, boils it all down for King Agrippa and says, it's just about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed is alive. It's all about the resurrection. And so, now, there can't be a resurrection without a death. I get that. But listen, read this quote with me from Dean Pinter. You don't need to know who he is, but he's smarter than me. The resurrection of Jesus means that God has begun the future restoration of all things in the present chaos of this world. This means that neither trial nor death have the last word. <laughs> it means that God can use difficulty and tragedy, pain and trial, sorrow and injustice, and use them as a crucible to transform and restore. It means it's not over until it's over. That's what the resurrection means. It means that in any circumstance, against any adversary, I don't have to react because I know that it, because Christ has risen, that it's already done for me. <laughs> if he is for me, who could be against me? What could possibly separate me from his love? <laughs> That's what Paul's been talking about all along. And maybe the fact that sometimes as Christians, we overreact to people or overreact to circumstances of our lives is because we don't understand the resurrection. Maybe. I don't know. I guess we'll have to talk about that one later. But 
Paul then repeats for King Agrippa all of the stuff that he has repeated for everybody else. And again, I wish we had time to go into it. It's really cool because when Paul is talking to King Agrippa, he actually tells the story differently than he did in Acts 22. Same story. It's about his conversion. But he takes his audience into account and changes some stuff. Instead of talking about Ananias to King Agrippa, he leaves Ananias out of it and says that Jesus himself tells him these things. Well, that, is that a lie? No, it's not really a lie because Jesus just spoke through Ananias. But Paul realizes, I don't want to muddy the waters with King Agrippa. I'm just going to present it to him in a way that he can understand. In fact, he gives us his famous line that Jesus said, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's interesting because he didn't say that before, but now he's saying it now because that's a Greek expression that means it's uh, not wise to try to fight against the gods. That's literally what that means. And Paul uses it because he's talking to King Agrippa. So we have to be careful who our audience is when we're sharing the gospel. we got to make sure we're presenting it in an understandable manner for them because that's what Paul's teaching us. For those of you that have been following along with the chiasm stuff too, Acts chapter 26, uh, verses 6 through 23 is an amazing chiasm. So you'll have to study that and look at that because I don't have time to show you. Because I want to get to Acts 27. Whew. I wanted to get here three minutes ago. So everyone take a deep breath. Whew. So that's a little bit of textual hermeneutic. And why do I take time to take you through those chapters? Because I don't want you to come here so I can tell you how to think. I want you to learn how to study the Bible and pay attention to stuff as you read it. I want you to know what kind of questions should I be asking as I read the Bible. I want you to pay attention to things that in the past we might not have paid attention to as Western Christians. I want us to start thinking like good students of the Scripture so that we understand it more fully than we ever have before because that's going to keep us from dangerous interpretations of the scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. Hopefully it makes sense. So Paul in Acts 27 is on his way to Rome because he's appealed to Caesar. Now there's no military transport. So the, the centurion is just going to look for a ship that looks like he can put the prisoners on and they're going to travel to Rome on that ship. They, if you read it, it's such an exciting chapter because Paul warns them, we can't sail because it's going to be disastrous. And of course, the centurion chooses to listen to the captain, who is the captain of the ship, and a seafarer, and Paul is not. He's a tent maker. So why should I listen to this Paul guy? Okay, so we're going to sail. And then we know what happens. Acts chapter 27. We're going to read it. Is that the right one? Acts chapter 27? Yes. Okay. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day <laughs> they began to throw the cargo overboard. Now we read that and we're like, oh, they threw the cargo overboard. <laughs> they threw their money, their profit, everything overboard. They were pretty scared. I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, what kind of fear would it take for you to start throwing your livelihood overboard? Okay. On the third day, have you ever been in a storm on, on the sea? I haven't. I mean, I've seen some pictures you know, I YouTube the videos of the cruise ships that are like back and forth, you know, and I've seen Titanic. Oh. So, you know, I can't imagine three days of being tossed on the ship. 
with the, the people that do this all the time starting to throw stuff overboard. I mean, I remember when I used to fly into Huron when, back in the day when we could. And I would be like, I'm going to die. But the cockpit door back in those days was always allowed to be open. And the peace of the pilots put peace in my heart. Now, if they had been like, ah, ah, I would have started praying because then I would have known. But because they were at peace, I'm like, okay, this must happen all the time. But I feel like it's bad. These guys are throwing the tackle overboard. Now, look at this. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. I'm going to tell you, church, there is a war right now for our hope. And some of us are not faring too well. Our hope is in the pilot, the captain of the ship. And if we don't keep our eyes on him, we're, we're going to act in some ways that are a response to the storm and not a response to what our captain is saying. Paul stood up. They've gone a long time without food. Paul stood up and says, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. When I read that, sometimes I have a hard time with Paul saying, you should have taken my advice. Because <laughs> if you're in a storm and you're hungry, you're hangry, <laughs> and someone stands up and says, I told you so, <laughs> you might be thrown overboard, right? <laughs> like, so we have to understand that Paul has obviously said something to them, not in a manner of, I told you so, but in a manner that they could receive it. See, you can say the right words, and you can say them in a way that people won't receive them. So we make sure that we speak the truth in love, because they received his word. And then Paul goes on to say, Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Sometimes it's not what you know, it's who you know. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. And I love the fact that the Holy Spirit told him all this, or the, the angel, but he couldn't tell him the name of the island. <laughs> and so it's just like, we're going to just run aground on some island. We don't know where, because otherwise they might try to steer toward that island. Hmm, so the Lord knows what details to give and what details to hold back. And sometimes we like to try to get all the details because we're Westerners and we got to know everything. And so we try to make the Bible mean everything that we want it to mean. And we, some of the details we just don't know. 
And it's not wrong and it's not sinful to just say, I don't know, but I know who's in charge of the ship. And I'm going to keep my eyes on him. And I know it's not over until it's over. Are you with me? Look at what Paul's had to go through. An ambush by the Jews. He's been given the right amount of favor with leaders. The shipwreck. And then he gets on the island. We don't have time to look at 28. And he gets bitten by a snake. A poisonous snake. It's like for the love of all things righteous. I can't take it anymore. There has not been stars. There's not been sun for days. I told them not to do this. And we did it anyway. Now we're in this mess. And now I get bitten by a snake. No, that's not what Paul does at all, does he? The the scripture says the snake latches on and Paul shakes it off. Some of us just need to shake some stuff off. Some of us just need to keep scrolling. It's okay. We don't have to have all the right answers. In fact, some other people in the body of Christ might have answers that we don't have. I want, I want you to look at this. Oh, I didn't put the scripture up. But Jesus, they come to Jesus, remember? And they say, Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Do you know that in Judaism, there was a hotly debated issue, according to the Torah, whether or not you should pay taxes to Caesar. And some Jews said, if you pay taxes to Caesar, that's a sin against God. And some Jews said, no, it's okay to pay taxes to Caesar. And so they put Jesus in the middle of it. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't pick sides at all, does he? See, there's a war on for our hope, church. And, it's, and when we pit everybody against, today it's all about my way is the right way. My opinion is the right opinion. And we're, we're every topic now, every topic. We have to pit sides and are you on my side? Are you on that side? Are you this? Are you that? And it's just relentless. And the reason that so many people are facing anxiety and hopelessness and despair is because we've made every single issue this dividing issue in the body of Christ. We've been doing it for years, but it's really ramped up. And we've got to be careful because we're not going to go down with the ship. We have to act like He's in charge, and we are going to be saved. The relentlessness of trying to get everybody to be against the other people. And so what happens is the, the, the sailors are fearing that they're going to be dashed against the rocks. So in an attempt to save themselves, we're going to go, we're off of this thing. This is what people do. We're getting, I'm out of this church. I'm getting away from the body of Christ. I'm, it's just me and the Lord. No, we need people we disagree with. You don't have all the right answers, and I don't have all the right answers. We need each other. Restoration Church does not have all the right answers. The Assemblies of God does not have all the right answers. America does not have all the right answers. There is a global church. Only Jesus has all the right answers. And some of us are just putting down this, the lifeboat to save ourselves. We're distancing ourselves from the very people that are in the family of God. I'm going somewhere, trust me. 
I love that Paul says to the, the centurion, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. <laughs> That's a bold statement. Not they won't be saved, you won't be saved. Not I won't be saved, you won't be saved. And so the centurion must have convinces them. And then Paul leads them, I believe, in a communion meal. They break bread. And the breaking of bread, the other times it's used in Acts, is talking about communion, not just the breaking of bread. And if you read the rest of the book of Acts, or the rest of Acts 27, they all get to shore safely, but the ship is destroyed. Can I tell you something? The, the American church as we know it, okay, it might get destroyed in a way. Okay, the ship might just, we might be on planks here and there. And that's okay. Because you know what happens in Acts 28? They board a new ship. I guarantee you this. Christ's church will not fall apart. But if we, as an American church, have built our foundation on something that's not Christ's church, it might implode over the next couple years and it'll be okay. I won't like it, and you won't like it, but we're going to be okay. And we've got to remind ourselves, keep our eyes on the captain. Is he nervous yet? No, he's seated <laughs> at the right hand of the Father. So he's not up there wringing his hands, seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, what, I want to read one last verse, and then we're going to be done. I did a wedding this week. It was a great wedding. And while I was doing the wedding, <clears throat> something struck me that hadn't struck me before. And I shared it at the wedding, and I'm going to share it with you. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writing about husbands and wives. This is what he says. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. The wife must respect her husband. Remember a couple, or last week, Pastor Mark told us that husband and wife, that the family is a mini church. It's true. Male and female were created in the image of God. The, the full image of God is best seen in male and female. Okay? Now, for single people, please don't get upset with me. Okay? Just, just listen. God has put somehow some of himself in male and some of himself in female. And sometimes, as male and female, we both think we're right. You've been married a long time, you know, and you both have a very strong opinions about something or perspectives on something, and we both think we're right. But what if neither of us are fully right? And the compromise that, as husbands and wife, we make together is actually a fuller picture of what God is like. Male and female, he created them in his image. The only other time <clears throat> that something is created as one is the church. So, single people, now you're in again. Okay, here you are. We are the body of Christ. And what did Jesus say? The world will look at the body of Christ and see that you are one, as I and the Father are one, and then they will know that I came from the Father. So with all of our different viewpoints and all of our different perspectives and all of our different thoughts and all of our different opinions, we stay with the ship. And the ship isn't 
a building, it's not a denomination, it's not a program, it's people. And we stay with the ship. And even though we don't agree on all of these things, people are going to notice that. Because when we disagree out there, fireworks. All the gloves can come off, we can mistreat them, we can be rude, we can be mean, we can be all these things. But in the church, we recognize, nope, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay here with the ship. Now, if someone preaches another gospel than the gospel you've been taught, if someone preaches something other than Jesus is Lord, we can't believe it. That's clear in the scripture. That's false teaching. Not some of this other stuff that we talk about, these peripheral things that we tend to make more important. Be careful. Statistically, they tell us that the people who have been engaged in church when this coronavirus started back in March, 33% of them are no longer engaged with the church at all. 33%. They've walked away. And just because you're sitting in the room doesn't guarantee you're engaged with the church. You could just be on your own lifeboat trying to get away. And if you're watching online, you don't have to be in the room to be engaged. You can be engaged with the church even in a time of social distancing. That stuff doesn't matter. That's what I want to pray for Restoration Church as we close today. And so I want you, where you are, in the room or at home, to bow your heads. I want you to make an altar right there. For some of you today, there haven't been sun or stars for many days. And it just feels like thing after thing keeps coming at you. (laughs) And maybe you're where Luke described. Maybe you've lost hope. I'm going to pray today that against all hope, that you continue to put hope in the God who calls things as calls things that are not as though they were and brings the dead back to life. <laughs> that doesn't mean that all of our dead loved ones are going to be raised to, to life in this life. It's the reminder that Jesus has risen from the dead. So even in death, <laughs> there's no death. It's not over until it's over. However, I believe in a God that raises the dead. And I think we need to get better at asking him to do that. I believe in a God that can do more than I can ask and imagine. But some of us today have lost our hope, not because of the the situation around us, but because we've taken our eyes off the captain of the ship. Some of us are in our lifeboats trying to save ourselves And we're not staying with the ship. I won't say that my spiritual hermeneutic of Acts 27 is the thus saith the Lord. But it's definitely something he's put in my heart to live out. And my prayer is that he'll put it in your heart to live out.
so that no matter what happens in the days ahead, the months ahead, the years ahead, that you and I stay with the ship. We learn how to bear with one another in love. And we, we learn how to put the image of God on display for a watching world. That we don't arrogantly dismiss other denominations or other pastors or other evangelists or other prophets. Don't treat prophecies with contempt, but don't buy into everything you hear without doing some textual hermeneutic. You and I have got to stick together. You and I have got to be in the Word together so that when the ship falls apart, we stay together. And so, Father, I pray for grace today upon each and every one of us. God, the grace to bear with one another in love. God, give us a fuller perspective. Give us grace, God, to learn from one another. Not just the one another of Restoration Church. God, the one another of other parts of the body of Christ. You have fitted this global body of Christ together perfectly. And we cannot say to the other parts, we don't need you. God, we need to learn from one another. We need to gain a full perspective of who you are from one another. And so, Holy Spirit, give us grace to grow in our wisdom, our understanding, and our knowledge of the truth. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would cause our hearts today to overflow with hope by the power of your Spirit. God, I pray specifically for those today that are just facing battle after battle after battle. God, in their physical bodies, in their finances, in their spiritual life. God, I pray, give them grace today to shake it off. God, that doesn't mean we don't take things seriously. It doesn't mean that these aren't genuine, real concerns. But God, that we don't let them weigh us down but that we lift our eyes to where our help comes from. So give us grace today to shake off the things that need to be shaken off. Give us grace to set our hearts and minds on things above, to walk daily in this lifestyle of repentance. Father, I pray that Restoration Church, that our members would shine like stars in a world where sometimes the sun and the stars don't shine for many days. Give us grace to do everything without grumbling and complaining so that we can shine like stars. Help us to be the light of the world that you've called us to be. Give us the grace for it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us today, for staying engaged. And uh, we're going to still dismiss from back to front. If you're here in the